This is episode 24 of the Cosmosphere podcast. Today you're going to hear about Liberty Bell 7, the peril and promise of space exploration with Cosmosphere president and CEO Jim Remar. This presentation was presented in front of the actual Liberty Bell 7 spacecraft a few months ago here at the Cosmosphere, and it's a great talk. We're really looking forward to sharing this with everybody on the podcast. In this episode, you'll learn the story about how astronaut Gus Grissom's Liberty Bell 7 was recovered from the ocean floor in 1999 after spending nearly 40 years submerged at a depth of more than 15,000 feet at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. And that's deeper than the Titanic, which is just crazy. The Cosmosphere Space Works Division helped retrieve and conserve the craft to the state that it appears in today. Liberty Bell 7 is owned by the Cosmosphere, making it the only privately owned American spacecraft from that era. The Cosmosphere is among only four museums worldwide to have a flown set of crewed Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo spacecraft. We're really looking forward to the upcoming season of the Cosmosphere podcast. We have some exciting new episodes lined up. Um, focusing on the history of the V2 and the renovations that are going on here at the Cosmosphere for the V2 gallery. We also have some podcast episodes coming up covering spacesuits, the James Webb Space Telescope, and more. So during these unprecedented times, the Cosmosphere continues to bring virtual and digital programming and presentations to you. And this is made possible through several of our corporate partners, Airshare, Evergy, Clayworks Disability Supports of the Great Plains, Dillon's KU School of Engineering, Midway Motors, and RC, RCB Bank. So we thank those partners, and through that, we are able to provide this virtual programming to you. So today, we're going to talk about Liberty Bell 7, the spacecraft directly behind me. Um, this is one of the iconic artifacts uh, here at the Cosmosphere, and one that uh, has a lot of um, fondness in, in our hearts, but how did Liberty Bell become uh, such an iconic craft? What, what led to uh, that mission? So we've got to go back to the start of the space race back in 1957 when the Soviets launched the first artificial satellite uh, into orbit, Sputnik. Um, that was really a call to action uh, for this country. Uh, it led to the creation of NASA in 1958, and then it led to the selection of the original seven Mercury astronauts in 1959. Those seven were Deke Slayton, Gordon Cooper, Gus Grissom, Alan Shepard, Wally Schirra, Scott Carpenter, and I'm forgetting the seventh off the top of my head. Um, but anyway, those were the first seven, uh, Alan Shepard were the first seven uh, astronauts. Um, these were Hotshot pilots, uh, military pilots, test pilots, the best of the best. Um, they had the right stuff. Um, NASA was looking to bring uh, the military test pilots uh, and their skills as aviators to NASA, and they became the first uh, Americans in the space. So NASA put the original Mercury 7 
uh, through a myriad of, of different training, um, from survival training uh, out in the desert uh, to medical uh, testing to uh, significant G testing. Um, NASA ran these astronauts through a battery of tests uh, in an effort uh, to see what limits um, typical uh, flight G-force loads and potential space flight would have on the human body. At this point, it was unknown what would happen to an astronaut um, once they were up in space, and so NASA ran these, these men through so many different tests um, to try and make sure that they were ready for any scenario. Gus Grissom, uh, he was the uh, best of the best, um, unquestioned, uh, one of the best pilots uh, in our country at that time, uh, would go on to uh, a distinguished career, um, unfortunately perishing in the Apollo 1 fire uh, back in the 1960s. Um, but Grissom uh, was one of the original Mercury 7 and would become the, the pilot of Liberty Bell 7. But before Grissom went up, Alan Shepard became the first American uh, to go up into space. In 1961, Shepard aboard his Mercury spacecraft did a 15-minute suborbital flight. So it was basically a straight-up shot and straight down. Um, becoming the first American in space, obviously uh, an incredible milestone and one that set this country on a path forward to ultimately achieving the goal of President Kennedy of reaching the moon by the end of the decade. So after Shepard's flight, Gus Grissom became the second American to go up into space aboard the spacecraft behind me, Liberty Bell 7. And again, this was a suborbital flight. Uh, both Shepard and Grissom were boosted up into space via the Redstone rocket. Uh, the Redstone was capable of going up into space but was not capable of putting the Mercury spacecraft into orbit. So these were literally the first two tests uh, on the Mercury to see how it pre uh, performed in space and then more importantly on the astronauts to, to see the impact of going up into space. So as Grissom prepared, uh, he set off on his 15-minute suborbital launched via the Redstone. Um, by all accounts, uh, a textbook 15-minute suborbital flight. Again, a straight shot up and straight down, uh, landing in the Atlantic Ocean. And again, uh, the flight went off without any hitches. Um, it was a, a normal flight. Uh, as Grissom prepared his cabin as well as his suit um, for recovery, uh, something happened unexpectedly. Uh, the hatch on the Mercury spacecraft blew and jettisoned prematurely. Uh, the hatch on the Mercury's were held in place um, with detonated bolts. The hatch was unable to be opened from the outside or the inside without the detonation of these bolts. And so what the Mercury astronaut would do was they would detonate a, a plunger. They would hit a small plunger in the spacecraft and that would trigger the explosive bolts and then the hatch would be jettisoned feet away from the spacecraft. At that point then, the astronaut would exit the spacecraft and, and be recovered. Unfortunately, the hatch on Liberty Bell 7 malfunctioned, uh, blowing prematurely. At that point, water began to flood into the spacecraft. Grissom then ex narrowly escaped the spacecraft, but as Grissom was literally drowning uh, in the sea, the recovery team began to recover the helicopter, not realizing uh, that Grissom was fighting for his life. 
Grissom had been unable to properly prepare his spacesuit. He didn't have his neck dam in place, and, and the ports on his suit weren't plugged. And so instantly, Grissom's suit began to fill with water. Realizing that Grissom was literally drowning, the crew quickly let the spacecraft go, cut the spacecraft loose, uh, and then recovered Grissom. Once they got Grissom inside the spacecraft, they hooked, or inside the recovery helicopter, they hooked back up to the spacecraft. At this point, though, the spacecraft had already filled with water and was too heavy to lift up. So what the recovery helicopter began to do was they began to drag the spacecraft back to the recovery ship. Unfortunately, the helicopter received a warning inside uh, the, the copter, inside the cockpit, and so fearing that the, the helicopter um, would go down, they cut the spacecraft loose. And so at that point, Grissom is inside the spacecraft, he's safe, um, but the spacecraft now uh, is cut loose. And because of the fact that it is filled with water, it began a long descent uh, three miles to the bottom of the ocean. So Grissom uh, is safely on board. The recovery ship uh, goes uh, back. Um, and again, by all accounts, the, the hatch blew prematurely. Um, Grissom was the best of the best in, in cool under pressure. Uh, so while some theorized that Chris Grissom panicked, um, it, it is unlikely that that occurred. Um, also, the other Mercury astronauts, when they detonated their hatch, would have a bruise uh, along their wrist and forearm. Uh, there was no bruise on, on Grissom's wrist or forearm. So this was in 1961. Um, fast forward. Uh, in the 1980s, as the Cosmosphere acquired its collection and as the Cosmosphere began to develop its exhibitry, it knew that it wanted to display a Mercury spacecraft. At that time, all the other Mercury spacecrafts were on display at other museums across this country. So the only available Mercury was Liberty Bell 7. The problem is, is it resided on the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. So for years, the Cosmosphere, working with deep sea salvage expert Kurt Newport, began to look at how an expedition could recover Liberty Bell 7. Uh, in the 80s and in early 90s, there wasn't a lot of, of technology um, that would allow the success of, of such a recovery. Plus, the expense was exorbitant. So there were a lot of factors um, that really would prohibit um, anyone from going after the spacecraft. In 1999, the Discovery Channel stepped forward uh, to fund the expedition uh, to go find Liberty Bell. So setting out on an expedition, Kurt Newport, the Cosmosphere, and Oceaneering, funded by the Discovery Channel, set out to find the lost spacecraft. So working in seas uh, around the area of the Bermuda Triangle, uh, the, the crew um, led by Kurt Newport there in the center, uh, Max area of the Cosmosphere Oceaneering, began to look for the, the uh, spacecraft to recover it. So what they initially did was they would, would pull a sonar, um, a side-scan deep-sea sonar. And what that would do is it's essentially like mowing the lawn. So they'd drag that sonar behind the ship back and forth 
and that sonar then would register targets on the bottom of the ocean. And so as that sonar hit the target, they would be able to read on the computer monitors on the targets and determine um, what the targets were. So they identified several dozen targets initially. And so as they began to study the data and they began to, to read the sonar data, um, they set out to go down and dive on these targets um, using a remotely operated vehicle. And so they chose the target and set out to drop the ROV on deep sea dive um, to, to look at that first target. And amazingly, target number one happened to be Liberty Bell 7. And there she is at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. You can see the corrosion around the top, um, the corrosion around the bottom. That corrosion there at the bottom was actually the beryllium heat shield. And at those depths, there's a lot of electrolytic activity, so a lot of electricity um, in the waters. And if you've been to the Cosmosphere and seen the craft um, or have seen it in other locations, you can literally see here on the top and then inside the spacecraft how that electrolytic activity began to attack the control panel as well as the, the top recovery section of the spacecraft. Brilliant heat shield was actually a, a, the, the sacrificial land and acted like a, a big battery. Um, the brilliant heat shield took all of that electrolytic activity um, and deflected it from the rest of the spacecraft. And so that debris you see at the bottom uh, ring of, of the spacecraft is literally the disintegrated brilliant heat shield. And so the, theoretically, if the craft had not been discovered, you would see a lot less of the recovery section and the entire control panel would have virtually been gone. So again, target number one, boom, find Liberty Bell 7. Cruise is static. So they drop the ROV and they, using hand controllers, almost like playing a video game uh, in your home, attach hooks uh, and clamps to the top ring of Liberty Bell 7. And so then, using a wench on top of the recovery ship, they began the, the long and laborious haul of that spacecraft up to the top. While they're doing this, they're high seas, so the, the seas are very rough. As they're up and down, that craft is doing this, and the, the hoist and the line is doing this. At some point during that initial recovery, the line broke, um, almost crushing the, the, the soul of the crew, if you will. Um, that line broke, and Liberty Bell sank back down to, to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Fortunately, they had the coordinates. Um, they knew where they were at. They went back to port um, after repairs, went back out to sea, found the spacecraft again, and then brought the craft back up. And so in that image here, you can see the, the craft when it initially crested on the surface of the ocean, um, bringing it back up. You can see all the corrosion there on the recovery section. So once they got the craft up, again, it's doing this in the ocean, got the craft up, put it into a recovery net um, so they didn't lose it again, and then brought the craft back onto to the ship. One thing about the, the spacecraft was it was equipped with a small explosive. Um, the explosive was there in case the craft was lost and there was fear of Russian discovery. 
And so NASA theoretically could detonate that explosive, um, destroying the craft um, if they felt uh, the Soviet Union was potentially going to, to recover the craft. Fortunately, uh, NASA never detonated that explosion, but because that explosive bomb was still in the spacecraft and still potentially live, there were two bomb experts that were part of the recovery crew. And so there you can see the two bomb experts uh, in their hand is the little SOFAR bomb um, that they removed from the Liberty Bell. Before any of the other crew could go and inspect the spacecraft, they had to remove it. So literally the entire crew is, is back behind um, protective barriers in the event uh, that SOFAR bomb exploded. So they got the SOFAR uh, out, and then the crew, Kurt Newport, the Cosmosphere, uh, descended upon the craft in, in what I'm sure was, was just uh, an exuberation and excitement. So there's Kurt Newport, who, who led the expedition, uh, getting his picture um, next to uh, the lost spacecraft. Max Airy and Kurt Newport um, looking at the spacecraft once they, they got it onto the ship. So when an artifact has been residing at the bottom of the ocean um, for, for years and years, in this case, Liberty Bell was down there for, for 38 years, the worst thing that can happen uh, to an artifact like that uh, that will heighten or expedite corrosion is oxygen. Um, as well as uh, depletion of water. So initially when that craft was brought back up onto the ocean, oxygen became its enemy and began attacking uh, the, the artifact, um, which ultimately would lead to, to further damage. The other component to that was you could not allow the spacecraft to dry out. Um, again, that would lead to, to further damage as well as corrosion from the salts. So what they did, a local company here in Hutchinson, Superior Boiler, um, created a, a vessel um, that, A, would hold water um, to allow Liberty Bell to be immersed in water, but then would also be its transport vessel. So here, the crane is lifting the spacecraft into the transport vessel. That transport vessel would then have its lid placed on top, and seawater would then be piped and pumped into uh, that transport vessel. One of the things they did um, during the recovery, in which a lot of uh, deep sea salvage expeditions do, uh, is you take uh, styrofoam, the, the large styrofoam cups, and you put them in a net and attach it to the ROV. And what happens is when that ROV drops uh, down to the, the depths of where um, the, the artifact is or the recovery piece is, the pressure at those depths literally crushes the styrofoam cups. It, it squeezes all the air out of that styrofoam. And there, one of the, the crew members is holding one of the tiny Tiny, uh, styrofoam cups. Again, this cup started out as a, as a cup this size, um, but because of that pressure, it literally compressed it to this very tiny cup. There's the lid um, being dropped down onto uh, the, the Liberty Bell in the recovery vessel. And then all the crew uh, signed uh, the vessel. Um, and this picture is Gunther Vent. Uh, Gunther was the pad leader, uh, Mercury all the way through early shuttle. Uh, unique story into himself, um, an incredible character, icon in, in space history. Um, it was Gunther who closed the hatch uh, on Gus Grissom uh, during that, that mission, and Gunther was aboard uh, the spacecraft, or the, the recovery ship, as was the helicopter pilot, the recovery helicopter.
helicopter pilot, uh, Jim Lewis. And so in this picture, uh, Gunter uh, is signing the, the shipping container. And then obviously the crew uh, elated, um, toasting with champagne uh, the recovery of, of the lost spacecraft. So they recovered the spacecraft. Now what do you do with it? Well, the spacecraft obviously had a lot of corrosion. It was damaged and needed conservation. So NASA and the Smithsonian, knowing the expertise of the Cosmosphere's restoration and conservation team, allowed the spacecraft to be shipped to the Cosmosphere, where Cosmosphere technicians would undergo a six-month restoration, conservation of that spacecraft. So in the summer of 99, the spacecraft arrives at the Cosmosphere. Uh, the first thing that the, the team did uh, was to exit uh, the water, to, to pump the water out uh, of the, the vessel. And then the spacecraft was lifted out of the, the recovery, uh, the shipping container, and then lowered down into uh, the museum level of the Cosmosphere, where the Liberty Bell was then put into a special restoration lab. And so that's a picture of the, the vessel, the, the Liberty Bell being lifted or, or dropped down into uh, the Cosmosphere's restoration lab. So initially, once the uh, Liberty Bell was in the restoration lab, Cosmosphere technicians began to uh, look through, do a condition report of the spacecraft to determine the full extent of, of the corrosion. Um, you can see the craft was still full of water. Um, the restoration technician there reached into the muck. Um, so the interior of the craft was full of seawater, uh, sand um, from, from the bottom of the ocean, um, and then all the components uh, where that electrolytic activity had begun to destroy uh, the control panel were, were at the bottom of this. And then as they began to scoop out the muck and debris, they began to find uh, mercury head dimes. And I'll talk about these dimes and some of the other stuff here in a little bit. So this gives you a real indication of, of the damage, the corrosion um, to Liberty Bell 7. So you can see the, the highly corroded area uh, inside the spacecraft and how a lot of the, the uh, control panels and, and gauges and switches were, were severely corroded and damaged. This is a picture of Gus Grissom's survival knife, the, uh, the Randall knife um, that was found at the bottom of the, of the muck. Um, again, I'll talk about that in a little more detail. Another picture of the, the interior, um, again, just, just the significant damage um, that, that had occurred during the course of the, the 38 years at the bottom of the ocean. And again, the Liberty Bell resided deeper than the Titanic. So the first thing that Cosmosphere had to do was continually flush uh, the Liberty Bell with water. Um, again, this was to preserve the artifact, but also it was a way to begin to, to draw out uh, the, the calcium deposits, the salt, um, but also to begin to clean uh, the, the artifact um, from a lot of the debris. Uh, so for several weeks, it literally sat in a shower um, where it was wet 24-7. And so they just rinsed it continuously to a point where they felt it was stabilized and were able to then begin uh, the restoration. So once the craft was stabilized, the task was to literally take the entire craft apart, to dissemble it, over 20,000 components. And these technicians 
took every single component apart. Uh, in this picture, you can see technician Greg Buckingham uh, working on some of the interior uh, consoles of, of the spacecraft. Literally, every component of this craft behind me was taken apart or taken out. The shingles um, were all removed from the spacecraft and, and put uh, onto a display. And the reason why was because at these depths, water, salt water, had permeated every aspect, even the, even the, the hardware. Um, so these components were full of, of salt water, calcium deposits. And so to remove that corrosion and to properly ensure stability, all the components had to be removed, and then one by one, each component was literally disassembled. All the corrosion was removed. Corrosion inhibitor was placed on the components, and then these components were reassembled, stabilized, and then put back into the craft. So you can see in the bottom, so the shingles are on the top left, uh, the craft um, without any of its exterior um, on the bottom right, and then this is a picture of the spacecraft uh, inside the conservation lab at the Cosmosphere. And this was at various points of, of uh, disassembly um, as they began to uh, remove the components um, for restoration and conservation. And then once the components were removed, restoration technicians set at, at work tables um, using things such as dremel tools and, and dental picks um, to remove the corrosion. Um, once that corrosion was removed, again, they would put a corrosion inhibitor back on it to stabilize it and then put the components together. And this was painstaking and very laborious. They were working 12 to 14 hours a day, seven days a week. The restoration, which took six months, really was probably a year and a half project, um, but because of uh, the fact that as part of the recovery, Discovery Channel also put uh, an exhibition together, a touring exhibition together, that was going to launch the summer of 2000. Uh, Cosmosphere technicians were under a compressed time frame to get the, the spacecraft restored so it could then go uh, on the national tour. Another picture of, of technician Greg Buckingham working on one of the components and again this was done down in the Hall of Space Museum uh, live to to the public so visitors to the Cosmosphere could go down and see it we also had a webcam um, so visitors could could watch it live and it was one of the, the great moments in, in Cosmosphere history that's a picture of, of the uh, one of the components um, and, and some of the dental tools uh, that were used to remove the, the uh, corrosion so here's the Randall knife. Um, the Randall knife uh, was, was sort of a badge of honor um, for the original Mercury 7. Uh, all of the 7 had their survival knives. Um, these are, are collector's items. Um, Randall knives have a, a very large following in this country. Um, one might ask why a knife uh, of that magnitude or size was needed. Well, for a couple reasons. One, uh, that knife uh, would be used if Grissom needed to uh, survive. If, if the, the craft had, had gone off course and he landed somewhere um, and it was in a remote location before he could be rescued, um, that would be used as survival. Uh, the other was if, for some reason, the hatch uh, was unable uh, or did not blow, um, that knife could literally be used uh, to cut their, his way out 
out of the spacecraft. Um, so you saw the original picture uh, of the knife as it was recovered. Um, this is the knife post-restoration. Um, uh, these are uh, seasick pills. Um, top picture, you can see uh, what the, the pack looked like um, prior to uh, conservation. Bottom picture afterwards. Um, again, if uh, Grissom came down off course, uh, happened to be out at sea for a period of time, he could take these pills in the event uh, he became seasick. Uh, this was his recovery and survival kit, um, again, post-conservation. You might note the uh, little pack of dial soap uh, in the center of the picture. Um, I've always wondered why the dial soap was included in the in the recovery um, kit. Uh, 15 minute suboval flight, um, not like it was going to be a long duration flight. If Grissom had, had gone down uh, off course and, and had to survive, the last thing I'm probably thinking he's going to be concerned about is, is proper cleanliness or hygiene. So I've always wondered why dial soap was included in that, but it is a, a pretty cool piece uh, of that survival kit. Then you can see the, the recovery hook. Um, this was the hook that would have been attached um, to the helicopter as well as to the top of the craft. You can see that here um, on the craft itself. And then I talked about the mercury head dimes. Um, so Grissom and the launch crew um, placed uh, 52 mercury head dimes in, in the spacecraft. They were in a, a special uh, package, as well as five silver certificates, silver dollar bills. And these were wrapped up in a, in a wire sheath. You can see that sheath there, um, and then shrink-wrapped. Um, the, the reason was, was the dimes and the silver certificates um, were mementos. And so as Grissom went up to space and came back down, uh, the recovery team and the engineers could remove the dimes and the silver certificates, and these could be given to VIPs um, as something that flown in space. And so as the technicians began to go into uh, the, the craft and reach around into the muck, they, they discovered the dimes, and then during the course of the restoration, they found the silver certificates. Interestingly enough, one of the silver certificates um, was signed by the launch crew, and they even drew the crack of Liberty Bell 7, and then each one of the crew, the, the launch crew, signed the silver certificate. Um, and these are engineers, um, obviously well-educated, um, but they misspelled launch. Uh, they said launch crew instead of launch crew. Uh, the Liberty Bell shingle, um, again, uh, post-restoration, and you can see it on the craft here. And then this is the restoration team. It was comprised of Cosmosphere uh, employees, technicians, as well as volunteers. Uh, and this is the volunteer group um, that worked on the restoration. And then this is the, the Cosmosphere Space Works restoration technicians um, that worked on that restoration. And then this is what the craft looked like post-restoration. Uh, so again, you, you saw the pictures um, prior to during the course of the recovery, uh, and this is what the craft looked like after restoration. So a phenomenal achievement by, by the Cosmosphere and by our SpaceWorks tech. And because of the efforts, because of, of what we did, uh, the Cosmosphere did for the recovery as well as the restoration, which was self-funded, NASA and the Smithsonian signed the title of that spacecraft over to us. So the Cosmosphere is the only museum uh, in the country uh, that owns an early manned American spacecraft that was flown. Um, no other museum outside of NASA or the Smithsonian uh, can, can claim that. So we're, we're very proud uh, to, to have 
Liberty Bell as our own. So again, as I said, as part of the effort to uh, pay back or recover the, the cost of the expedition, uh, the Discovery Channel um, created a national touring exhibition. And so starting in the summer of 2000 until 2006, Liberty Bell in a 3,000 square foot exhibit crisscrossed this country going to many of the large science centers nationwide um, where the spacecraft and the exhibit would be on display for several months at a time. Um, so we were very proud to be able to share that spacecraft with the public. So there's a picture of the craft uh, as it gets ready to, to set out. The spacecraft was then brought back here to the Cosmosphere in 2006, um, where it was put down into the Hall of Space Museum, um, where it went on display. Um, but quite honestly, the spacecraft still has a lot of interest, um, not just here in this country, but internationally. Um, so over the last five or six years, the craft has, has been all over. It's been to, to Bonn, Germany. It's been to Indianapolis. Um, it potentially will be going to Brazil. And so while we consider the craft one of our iconic anchor artifacts, um, it's also something that, that we feel is important for us to continue to share um, with people, not only in the United States, but, but worldwide. And so we will continue to do that as long as, as it's feasible. Um, we love having the craft here at the Cosmosphere, and as Carla said, it will be here at least through the end of the year, so we invite you to come out. Um, but we also want to try to continue to get the craft on the road and, and allow other people to, to see this magnificent artifact. Um, with that, I'm going to open it up for questions. I'm sure there are questions out there, um, but that's some insight into the mission of Liberty Bell, uh, the recovery operation, as well as the, uh, the conservation of the spacecraft. Okay, and to maintain our social distance, I'm going to ask these questions <laughs> off camera here. We're all about social distancing here at the that's Cosmosphere. Right. All of the safety precautions. All the safety precautions. That's why you can come to the Cosmosphere and know that this is a safe environment. So Jim, you mentioned the crash in Liberty Bell 7 a couple of times. Can you, can you explain that further? How did it happen? Yeah, so if you, you, you can't see, but at the very top of the Liberty Bell is the painted crack. And so the original seven uh, got to name their spacecraft. And each one of the, the um, astronauts uh, gave their craft a name, and, and that name was then um, painted onto or stenciled on the spacecraft. Uh, Gus Grissom uh, named his spacecraft Liberty Bell after the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. And so to honor that, to honor the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia, um, they painted the crack uh, to resemble the crack of the, the actual Liberty Bell in, in Philadelphia. And then each one of the craft um, was named Seven uh, to, to honor the original Seven. Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, the hatch blew prematurely, obviously, and it jettisoned feet away from the craft and sank. Um, so its its location was probably somewhere near the craft, um, but not with the craft. And so the recovery team had an idea of where the hatch um, might be and originally had, uh, as a part of the expedition, um, set out to also recover the hatch. 
Um, unfortunately, when the cable broke and they had to go back to port, they lost time. Um, that time was what they would have done or used to, to recover the hatch. So unfortunately, they did not recover the hatch, um, so the hatch still resides at the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean. Mm -hmm. Is that something that was pretty common in that era, Jim, for the astronaut to bring personal artifacts? And is it something that is still done on today's space? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yes, um, it was common uh, for the astronauts to do it. Um, and it is common today. Uh, the difference from then to now, uh, at that point, um, the the entire crew didn't know. And by crew, I mean the the engineers, the the flight directors, the the, the launch uh, team. They weren't informed that Grissom had brought some of these um, mementos into the spacecraft. Uh, after time, NASA uh, developed what is called a personal preference kit. Um, so each astronaut was able to, to pack um, some mementos into an official kit uh, that was put onto a manifest. Um, so it was documented that these pieces um, were, were a part of the flight. Um, and that's a practice that, that continues to this day. Um, you might even recall if you watched the, the SpaceX launch a, a few weeks back, um, the two astronauts there brought uh, the little dinosaur uh, on board the spacecraft. So again, we still continue that practice. So what is your personal favorite artifact from that recovery of Grissom's personal items? Well, it's probably, it, my favorite artifact is the Randall knife, um, just, just because of, of the coolness factor um, and, and the fact that Randall's are such a collector's item. Um, but a close second is the dial soap. Um, that, that to me is just uh, ironic, um, that dial soap was included. Um, the fact that it survived and, and, and was preserved um, is, is pretty a pretty cool story. Um, but I will never understand why uh, a dial soap was brought on board a 15-minute suborbital. It may have been one of those early promotions. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I think the answer um, is, is twofold. Not only did uh, we learn some things regarding deep sea uh, salvage and recovery, um, so some of the things that were done um, with the Liberty Bell were also similar to what was done with the recovery of the, the F-1 engines. Um, side scan sonar um, was used on, on both missions. Um, remote ROV operation and manipulation was used. Um, so, so there were definitely parallels. The other thing um, that, that Liberty Bell, the recovery of Liberty Bell, um, helped with was, was the restoration and conservation. Uh, so things learned during the, the Liberty Bell um, project were also used and implemented during the, the restoration and conservation of the F-1 engine. So um, it, that recovery and, and restoration and conservation was very important to uh, the success of the, the F-1s. Got it. Wound cleaning. That that makes sense. Okay. Can you tell us if any person ever see this craft after they fly? I am going to say guess yes, um, but I don't know that to be 100% fact. Okay. You have, uh, we have a phone someone online asking if they can see different angles of the craft. Can you tease a little bit about 
Yeah, sure. So what, what you're seeing today um, is, is just the beginning of, of the Cosmosphere's next venture. Um, the given the, the, the environment we're in today with, with COVID and, and the fact that um, people just aren't comfortable getting out um, really led the Cosmosphere to, to recognize the importance of virtual and digital programming and presentations such as what we're doing today. And so we are beginning uh, the process of, of creating new virtual and digital product. Uh, that is digitizing the collection, the museum, uh, some of our archives, uh, creating virtual or digital content, education content, presentations like Dr. Goddard's lab. Um, and so one of the first projects that we'll undertake is a, a 360 3D scan of Liberty Bell 7. And so here in the not too distant future, we're gonna be able to take this awesome artifact and present it to all of you in a manner that, that you've never been able to see. And so if you can't get here to the Cosmosphere, you're gonna be able to experience the, the artifact just like you would if you were here. Um, and so we're excited to, to start that process. We've started with some of our smaller artifacts um, and, and we'll be bringing some of that online, but we're really excited about the future of, of virtual and digital and look forward to bringing the Cosmosphere to you. So the, the private ownership of, of the Liberty Bell is, is very important for us. Um, it, it is our craft, so that, that means it's not on loan or owned by another entity. Um, so regardless of, of whatever happened to the Cosmosphere, this is our artifact in perpetuity. And, and so that's a really big deal to us. Um, it's not. It, it is very rare that that a, a spacecraft such as this um, would would be owned privately. Um, all of the the Mercury, Gemini, and Apollo spacecrafts uh, are owned by the Smithsonian. Um, they are lent to other museums for display, but they are all owned by the Smithsonian. And so, very proud to say that that Liberty Bell is ours. Yeah, let me see. There was a really good picture. Let me see if I can pull that up again. Bear with me a second. So you can see the, the cloth bag with, with the metal straps. Um, that was the landing bag. Um, so when, when the spacecraft came down, um, that landing bag was deployed and it was um, used to, to soften the, the impact of the spacecraft. So uh, Liberty Bell didn't have any type of, of reverse thrusters um, and it had the, the parachute um, that, that allowed it to, to come down um, at a less of a rate of speed, but because it didn't have the, the reverse thrusters, that impact was going to be fairly significant, so that landing bag was used to, to soften the, the blow of impact. Great. Was, Gus, was Gus's helmet ever 
Uh, I don't believe his helmet was ever found. Um, obviously, he still had his suit, um, but but his helmet uh, was never found. Well, thank you for, for joining us. Um, again, we look forward to, to doing more um, with you. Uh, continue to, to check our website, uh, social media, um, and, and we will uh, continue to, to bring excellent contact to you in an effort to bring the Cosmosphere to you. So thank you again, and, and have a great day.